let's talk about character development. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 35 of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast. This is where we talk about writing, a lot today, spies, and writing about spies. I'm your host, espionage author P.A. Duncan. You'd think after some, oh, 20 years of writing vignettes, short stories, and long fiction about my characters, that they're pretty much developed to their peak. And that's true. But how did they get there? Or rather, how did I get them there? This goes beyond making sure you keep their physical description consistent not only within the story, but if you write a series, keeping that consistency across multiple stories or multiple books. I thought I had my two main characters pretty well fleshed out and had kept them fairly consistent throughout the canon of my work. Then I found a great character worksheet. I can't quite remember who suggested it to me, but I found it online. It was a good 10, 15 pages worth of questions that resemble, but also exceed those for the highest top secret background check. I decided why not fill out one for both my Fisher and Alexei Bukharin, my two main characters. Each question posed in the worksheet about the character made you think and do so below the superficial surface of a character. Because my and Alexei come from two different backgrounds and because there's a significant age difference between them, 15 years, I often had to research culture, history, education systems, and their countries of origin to answer the questions. For example, I had stated in Alexei's backstory that he was a Communist Party favorite in the Soviet Union and that the party had significant plans for him, which he disrupted by marrying the woman he loved instead of the right party members elected for him. But I never established what was his special talent that enthralled the party and made them plan out his life. Through the character worksheet, I discovered he was a piano prodigy. Now, the Soviet Union took development of its musical and fine arts talents as seriously as it did its Olympic athletes, perhaps without performance-enhancing drugs, however. 
they wanted to show that communism was equivalent in capability to capitalism in anything. However, Alexei played the piano because he loves music and idolized Sergei Rachmaninoff. So, when he defected, he didn't leave all that behind. Again, via the worksheet, I established that the first paycheck he got from the directorate when he came to the United States went to purchasing a baby grand piano for his small apartment. And that piano has traveled with him from that apartment to one he shared with his son Peter, to Mai's condo, to their house in Virginia, and to their house in Geneva, Switzerland. And by learning this, I could enrich other aspects of both his and Mai's personalities. She, for example, sometimes thinks he loves his piano more than he loves her. He uses music to reflect his moods rather than expressing them verbally. So anyone in the house knows when he plays Moonlight Sonata, he's not happy. Another aspect of that character worksheet deals with the character's family background. Of course, fictional characters, you've got to make that all up. But again, it makes you think about the character and about what made them who they are. For my main characters, Mai and Alexei, I wanted them, again, to be three-dimensional. So this is a very important step, knowing their family background. I didn't want them to be flat, stereotypical tropes, though there's nothing wrong with tropes in genre fiction. Readers actually look for them and are disappointed when they don't get what they expect. So what about their family background? It's key to Mai's history and development as a spy that her parents were spies and died because they were spies whose cover was blown. She wants to fulfill a legacy, trope one, and she wants to honor their sacrifice with her performance, trope two. Alexei grew up never having known his father, trope three, and that colors almost everything about him, from his trouble with commitment after his first wife's death, to his relationship with his son, to his Nazi hunts early in his career with the directorate. Indeed, he doesn't really resolve his lack of a father until he's in his late 50s, which I covered in the recent novelette, Old Love Does Not Rust. Without that character development, both Mai and Alexei would have been two-dimensional stereotypes. A spoiled, British, rich bitch, in Mai's case, a stiff, uncommunicative Russian jerk in Alexei's. I actually found 
that fleshing out their family history to be one of the most interesting aspects of the character sheet, because that told me so much more about them that I could work into their stories to make them real. My was a child of privilege, but resented that and rebelled. Another trope. After learning her family history on both sides, however, she realized she could use her privilege to make a difference. Alexei Bukharin was a serious, glum, socialist child, mostly ignored by his much older surviving brother and sister, and he felt most comfortable among the tombs of dead Scythians on the collective farm where he grew up. So, in the fleshing out of that familial relationship, I realized he didn't have the characteristics of the youngest child in a family, the baby. He was more like a middle child, striving to get attention. Therefore, I had to give him a younger sibling. Since his own father had died in World War II, the worksheet encouraged me, as it were, to have his mother remarry and then have a change-of-life baby who naturally looked up to his older brother, Alexei. In my world, these two brothers are really only four years apart, but worlds apart in other ways. Like most younger siblings, Sergei could be nosy and whiny and annoying. I speak from experience. I was the older sibling. That younger sibling is Sergei Nevansky, a character in Prologue to Revenge, my newest novelette and reader magnet. Sergei idolized Alexei, and when Alexei's mother and Sergei's father divorced, the brothers didn't see much of each other for close to 20 years. Indeed, Sergei is unaware that Alexei's defection was an arrangement of the Red Circle, the fictional cabal within the Soviet Union that tried to erase all vestiges of Stalinism. The Red Circle was another aspect of this character worksheet. It almost became a character itself. Sergei, therefore, has spent most of his life thinking his brother, Alexei, is a traitor. So, imagine the scene when they finally see each other in Afghanistan during the Soviet-Afghan War. But, sorry, that scene is still in my head. Someday. If you're a writer who has different main characters in each book, you can still find using a worksheet to flesh out those characters most helpful in creating characters readers can identify with and either like the hero or heroine or hate the villain or antagonist. And you don't have to use the super complicated one that I did. If you're a Scrivener user, it has built-in character sheets that are comprehensive. 
And a Google or Amazon search will give you plenty of choices for character sheets or books about developing a character. And finally, your antagonist needs character development too. Villains can't be two-dimensional. We have to understand their motivation as much as we do that of the protagonist. Why are they doing what they're doing? I just finished J.D. Robb's latest installment in the In Death series called Desperation in Death. Don't get me wrong. I love those books. But in Desperation in Death, we see the -the behind-the-scenes villain in maybe two scenes, which establish him as a perverted rich guy who likes dominating women and treating them like slaves. He also runs a network of auctions where children who have been groomed are sold as sex slaves. Okay, that's fine. Despite QAnon rantings about cannibalistic pedophiles in government, human trafficking of children is a serious problem. And I'm glad J.D. Robb addressed it. She has before in other of those books. However, we never understand in Desperation in Death why this man is the way he is. What made him become a sadistic bastard? He does meet with some appropriate poetic justice in the end, spoiler alert, but I needed to understand him more. And this is unusual for J.D. Robb. Her characters, her protagonists and her antagonists, are usually so well-developed, particularly the antagonist, that you cheer when Eve Dallas finally breaks him or her down in the interrogation room. Because you know what his motivation is, and you know that she has to get the person to admit it. And usually, because of the way Rob has developed that antagonist, you know why he's going to ultimately break and provide information to incriminate him or herself because of the character development. So, good guys or bad guys, find a character development tool that works for you as a writer and make your characters real people with real lives. Your readers will appreciate that. And now it's commercial time. Prologue to Revenge, the reader magnet setup story for my upcoming novel, Revenge, book two of Meeting the Enemy, is still available to pre-order. It will launch ebook and paperback versions on September 17th. Unfortunately, you can't pre-order the paperback, only the ebook, but I priced the ebook as low as Amazon will allow, 99 cents. Prologue to Revenge provides some of that character development backstory for Alexei Bukharin. If you've read book one of Meeting the Enemy, Terror, 
You know, Alexei leaves the United States in 2001 because he thinks Mai is dead in the rubble of the World Trade Center. He knows Osama bin Laden is behind this act of terrorism, but there's more history between the two men that doesn't come across in the book Terror. Prologue to Revenge explains that. And you get to meet Alexei's little brother, Sergei Nivansky. I'll put the buy link for the pre-order in the description of this episode. And commercial over. All right, let's read some more from Prologue to Revenge. From last week's reading, we know that Edwin Terrell, I did a character sheet on him, by the way, and it was a lot of fun, has provided Alexei a map of the tunnel system the CIA controls in the mountains of Afghanistan. So Mai, Alexei, and Sergei can escape the Mujahideen group Terrell is working with. So, let's see how their escape is proceeding as they discover a CIA supply depot in another cave along the tunnel network. After using some of the supplies for a meal and much-needed water, they settle down for a rest before the push to escape really begins. Prologue to Revenge Moving only his eyes, Alexei watched Sergei rise from his sleeping bag and head for the alcove with the chemical toilet. In a few minutes, Sergei reappeared to rummage through the crate with the MREs. He came to sit by Alexei, opened the MRE, and began to eat using the plastic spoon in its container. Well, these are not bad. Better than IRP, he murmured, chewing. American soldiers complain about them as much as Soviet soldiers do about IRP, Alexei replied. Sergei ate more as he studied his brother. How do you know how to get us out of here? The... CIA man explained it to me, Alexei replied. He and I have worked together before. It would be logical if you told me the secret in case something happens to you. Alexei looked at a dark corner of the cavern, his eyes narrowed. I cannot. Alyosha, this is your chance to overcome being a traitor. This is likely not the only cache of supplies in the mountains. If my colonel knew this, I cannot. Why? You want to be a traitor to your family for the rest of your life? Alexei looked at his brother, his dark hair and eyes reminding Alexei of his stepfather. Mama did not explain this to you, Alexei asked. Explain what? She did not explain that I defected, yes, but that I am a double agent. The West thinks I work for them, but I send information to the KGB. All the more reason to tell me about this tunnel network, right? No. If I did, your colonel would destroy them, and that would blow my cover. I am more effective as I work now. 
If the tunnels are destroyed, the West will know I was the one who told the Soviets about them. I would be arrested and put in prison, and the KGB would lose a vital source of information. So, no, I cannot reveal the extent of the tunnel network to you. I have a good memory. And if you tell anyone you are sending me to prison for spying, or worse, since I became a U.S. citizen, they could execute me for treason. For a moment, Alexei didn't think Sergei would buy it. He'd always been quick on the uptake, so Alexei hoped he'd done a good sales job. Sergei nodded and resumed his meal. I do not understand why Mama did not tell me you were a hero and not a traitor, he murmured. Well, it is not something to talk about freely, is it? When I left in 1964, she and your father had divorced. She did not see you as often, did she? Sergei shrugged. The old man was bitter about that, yes. He thought he could punish her by not letting me visit much. But he loved her, you know? He simply grew tired of competing with the memory of your father. Him and me both, Alexei thought. So we are agreed, then. I do not wish to burden you with the secret, but I also do not want to see you in trouble with your colonel. We will work something out. We have a few days to think about it, eh? Yes, we do. Tell me, Serja, are you married? Yes, only recently, though. No children yet, but soon, I hope. Sergei set his finished MRE aside, looking toward my sleeping bag. What is there between you and her? We work together. Sergei smiled and said, The looks you exchange, the way you look at her, what is it really? She is my partner. Sex partner? Alexei shrugged and looked away again. You could say that. She is my wife. Boje moi! And you work together? How is that possible? We work well together. You have seen her. She is smart and strong. And um, pretty beneath the uniform and the dirt, yes? Yes, she is. I never thought you would remarry after Sofia's death. You must love her very much. Alexei didn't reply to that, but rose and said, I'm going to get some sleep now. Wake Mai for her watch in three hours. This time, Alexei did crawl into the sleeping bag with Mai, on his side, facing her, and careful not to kick her injured foot. To his surprise, she opened her eyes. Do you honestly think he bought your line of bullshit? She murmured so softly, he almost had to read her lips in the dim light from the single Coleman lantern. Well, let's hope so, but I'm not explaining a triple agent to him. He will memorize the route. I have a plan. I'll lead us to some dead ends to confuse him, and you can help. When I have to consult the map, I'll call a rest break. You keep him occupied with your injured foot. Now that he knows you're his sister by marriage, he'll be attentive. Why did you tell him that? Because he shared with me. 
and if he goes back and tells his colonel we're married, you know exactly what will happen. They'll use me to get the map from you. My, I am prepared to destroy that map to keep it out of Soviet hands, and I am also prepared to sacrifice myself if need be to keep you out of it. Look, this is not something we can plan in our usual meticulous detail. We'll have to improvise on the run. Now, go back to sleep. Your watch is in three hours. She held his gaze for a moment and closed her eyes. He was asleep before he realized it. I think that's enough to read for now. We do have several more weeks in September, and I don't want to read the whole story to you. Yeah, believe it or not, I'd rather that you go out and buy it. I've had my first pumpkin spice latte of the season. Actually, I've had two, a hot one and an iced one. Again, don't judge. It's a little indulgence. And where the mornings have become pleasantly cool here, the afternoons are still summer-like. But this really is my favorite time of year. Before I sign off, I need to acknowledge with some more depth the death of Mikhail Sergeyevich Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union. He was a complicated man, a dedicated, determined socialist who understood that the Soviet Union's military could no longer try to match the United States missile for missile. He originated the concept of perestroika, and glasnost, reform and openness. Perestroika meant the end of central planning of, well, everything in the Soviet Union with a look toward the free market. Glasnost meant that the Soviet Union would be more open about its government, not only to its own people, but to the world. For example, I believe if Gorbachev had not been in power on April 26, 1986, we wouldn't have known about Chernobyl, and if we had learned of it by other means, which we would have, before Gorbachev, there would have been denial and cover-up, which could have been even more disastrous than that was. But Gorbachev has a mixed legacy in the Soviet Union. He did think Reagan was a buffoon, a plus for me, but die-hard communists in the Soviet Union resented his reforms, which had begun to take from them perks they expected. Believe it or not, a Pizza Hut commercial from the 1990s perfectly sums up Gorbachev's legacy. In it, Gorbachev takes his granddaughter to the new Pizza Hut opened in Moscow. At another table, a family recognizes him. The older man at the table begins to rant against Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost, while the man's son defends Gorbachev. At the end, the older man comes round, and he has everybody in the Pizza Hut toast the former general secretary. Google Gorbachev Pizza Hut commercial and watch it. It's serious and accurate, 
and hilarious at the same time. And it shows Gorbachev as he was, intelligent, modest, and a realist. Again, Gorbachev understood that continuing to expand the Soviet military to counter what they perceived as the threat from the United States would wreck the Soviet economy, which it was already doing a good job of. He believed in socialism, but he wanted to return to a pure form of it. In a documentary from several years ago, he states that he knew the country had to be reformed from top to bottom, but if he'd had more time, he could have accomplished that via socialism. The KGB attempted a coup that he survived, and a bit of the hard-bitten communist leader came out when he subsequently broke up the KGB, as a result, into three entities. That upset their power balance for a time. They got that back and more under Yeltsin and Putin. Gorbachev was essentially forced out of office in December 1991 after the Soviet parliament passed a law dissolving the Soviet Union and establishing the Russian Federation. He didn't want to go. He felt he had more to give his country, but his country wasn't interested. He was devoted to his wife, Raisa, and never got over her death in 1999. His Moscow apartment was filled with portraits of her. He became an elder statesman and a popular speaker around the world. He initially thought Putin, a fresh face, would be good for Russia, but became one of his sharpest critics. Gorbachev appears in a fictional context in my novel Love, Death, and he will appear in an upcoming novel that takes place in 2017, but that's a few years down the road. One of his final stated opinions about the United States is my favorite. He said, the United States won the Cold War and it went to their head. How true. Pokoisya smirom nisha. That's enough for this week. I hope everyone has a good weekend. But remember, what is it you're supposed to do? Always keep an eye out for spies. The proceeding has been a production of Unexpected Paths Media, copyright 2022, all rights reserved. Join us next week for a new episode of the Real Spies, Real Lives podcast and stand with Ukraine.